Front is a shared inbox application that has seen rapid adoption within companies. Front allows multiple members of a company to collaborate together on a conversation. Whether that conversation is an email, it's a Twitter message, or a Facebook Messenger message. And this is useful when a customer email, or other kind of message, needs to be shared between the sales and the engineering teams, or when a single email address is shared between different members of the same team, such as contact at softwareengineeringdaily.com. The contact at company domain inbox is often completely flooded, but that doesn't mean it's lacking interesting or sensitive emails. This might sound like a niche problem, solving shared email inboxes, but it's actually a problem faced somewhere within every company because the problem of shared inbox is really prevalent. Front has grown its user base really quickly, scaling its team as well as its infrastructure. The sensitivity of the data, emails, that Front is handling means that security is paramount. And as users of Front rely on it more and more as a central point of communication, uptime and consistency at Front needs to be maintained. Laurent Perrin is the CTO at Front, and he joins the show to describe the software architecture and the product strategy for Front. It was a fascinating show, and we covered the full stack. On the back end, Front pulls emails into S3 buckets and maintains the schema of that inbox in a SQL database. The desktop Front client is written in Electron, which is a way to write desktop applications in HTML5, JavaScript, and CSS. And we also talked about the system for keeping the communications feeling real-time. It's important that users are aware of what each other is doing because you don't want to be preparing a response to an email to a customer at the same time that I'm preparing a response and then maybe we both send the email at the same time and it looks really unprofessional and strange. So it needs to maintain that real-time nature and we talked about that as well. Before we get to the show, I want to mention that we are looking for a few different kinds of roles and you can find those roles at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. We're looking for writers, we are looking for people to help us with operations, and we're also looking for potentially podcasters. The bar for podcasters will be very high, but I do want to open up some applications and see who out there is interested in podcasting about software engineering. So please apply to those jobs if you're interested. I'd love to hear from you. Leap.ai matches you with high-quality career opportunities. You are more than just your skills and a job description and a resume. These things can't fully capture who you are. Leap.ai looks beyond these details to attempt to match you with just the right opportunities. You can see it for yourself at leap.ai slash sedaily. Searching for a job is frustrating, and Leap tries to reduce the job search from an endless amount of hours, days, weeks, to as little as 30 seconds, trying to get you matched to a job instantly by signing up based on your interests, your skills, and your passions. Leap works with top companies in the Bay Area, unicorns and baby unicorns, just to name a few, Zoom, Uber, Pony.ai, Cloudera, Malwarebytes, and Evernote. With Leap, you are guaranteed high response and interview rates. 
You can save time by getting direct referrals and guaranteed interviews through Leap.ai. Get matched to jobs based on your interests, your skills, and your passions instantly when you sign up. Try it today by going to leap.ai slash daily. You would also support Software Engineering Daily while looking for a job. Go to leap.ai slash daily. Thank you to leap.ai. Laurent Perrin, you are the CTO and co-founder of Front. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. Front is a shared inbox app, so it integrates with email and other various communication tools. What problems does Front solve for the companies and the people that use it? Basically, we try to solve external communication. So when we started, it was really the moment when everyone was starting to get fed up with email. And we realized that most of our friends were miserable at work because of email. And at that time, lots of new products were released, the new email clients, but they were either they were built for individual users. So they looked nicer, but they didn't really solve a new problem for teams. Or they were so different that people could not adopt them. Like they did not integrate with legacy email systems. So we decided to give it a shot and build a modern communication software for teams that happens to integrate with email really well. So what we solve basically is that we allow you to effectively work on asynchronous communication as a team. So we're going to sync with legacy systems, but threads are going to live in a sort of a global repo for your team where information can be private by default, but is always easily shareable with your team without creating additional copies. So for example, a scenario where you have a customer, you're having a sales discussion with them and suddenly it becomes a support discussion, it's something that you can solve very easily in front. So typically, like uh, you have conversations that will involve a growing number of people within the company. Normally, you'd have to, to juggle between tools or you'd have to use a complex workflow with emails. In front, it's something that can happen very easily. You have one conversation, you can uh, mention other people, you can reassign the conversation, you can share it with uh, more members of the team. So an example that you gave was the process of a conversation around sales becoming a conversation around support. So you might be talking to somebody, you know, you're talking to a potential customer and that customer says, well, do you support this integration with our electrical system? And you say to yourself, well, I'm a salesperson. I don't really know that. And you want to loop in a support person who might have a more technical answer, but you don't necessarily want to start a new email thread with them so you can have a commenting functionality within front in order to have an internal discussion around the answer to the customer. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so you have lots of tools. So you have support tools that already exist today. The problem is that these tools are built with the assumption that companies live in silo. So you have uh, like the support team that's going to do their own thing and the sales team that's going to do their own thing and maybe the partnership team. But the reality today is that a lot of work happens in gray areas that involve several teams. And if you work with in the, uh, with completely isolated tools or with email, that's going to eventually break down your company culture. 
What are some ways that workflows within companies change as a result of Front? So the biggest thing is that so in Front, you can have uh, team inboxes that are automatically shared with a number of, of people in the team. So every time this inbox receives an email, maybe 10 people can see it and can act on it. Or you have you can have private inboxes. And what we see is that people move like the greater share of their communication to team inboxes where that are uh, shared by default. And they realized that the reason why email is, uh, you know, a private channel, it's not because people want to work that way. It's because email works that way. And for example, when you join a new company, by default, you have access to like virtually none of the history of the company, even though you're the person that actually needs that information the most. Okay. Well, let's get into some of the engineering. Can you talk about the engineering stack for the first version of Front? So interestingly enough, it's still the, the version that's in production. We've never really rewritten uh, the, the system completely. So it works mostly in Node.js, and we have a fairly classical uh, backend. It's, uh, so we store all messages metadata in MySQL, and the content of each email is stored in a unique uh, S3 document on AWS. And then we have a distributed architecture with lots of message queues. So for example, if you send an email, that's going to live in a message queue. If you receive an email and we need to apply rules on that email, that's going to also process on the message queue. And in the end, we have uh, hundreds of different message queues that perform each individual uh, actions that, that are required to make the product work. So you've got MySQL storing all the metadata for every email, and you've got S3 storing the contents of the email, and you've got message queuing that is building the backend for the interactivity and the real-timeness. What are you using for message queuing? What ser- are you using a service? Are you using Kafka? No, we're, we're using SQS. So like as much as we can, we try not to build things ourselves. So we rely a lot on AWS for that. And then we integrate with a service for WebSockets so that uh, all apps stays in sync because Front is also a real-time app. So for example, if you start replying to an email, people that can see the conversation will see that you are replying to that email so that you don't have uh, you know two persons replying at once. Yeah, that's an interesting set of challenges there with the real-timeness where you really don't want there to be a conflict. If I'm writing an email to reply to a customer, you don't want somebody else in the organization to be also writing a reply at the same time. So you need to have the uh, quick syncing of different people front client apps. What are some of the challenges around getting that real-time nature engineered properly? So some of our customers, there are... On a single instance of front, you have 600 people. So it's organizations that receive multiple messages per second. And it's like a message arrives and it's going to be automatically assigned to a group of people. You have really complex workflows that, that happen in real time. I guess the biggest challenge in terms of engineering, it's not any specific challenge. It's that we have to be really good at a lot of different things. We have to be really good at front-end engineering because we need to make an app that's really fast, even though it's really complex. We store, we're not like at Facebook scale, but we store a great, we store billions of messages. So we also have to be pretty good at that. And also front is the, it's the major work tool of our customers. Like if front is not available, our customers cannot do anything. So we have to build that in a really reliable way. 
to give you maybe uh, a more specific example about the problems we solve, maybe one example is our counter infrastructure. So in a typical email client, you can think of counters as something fairly simple. It's like you receive an email, it increases by one. You read an email, it decreases by one. In front, it's vastly more complex because you're processing counters for uh, hundreds of people. You can see uh, folders of other people, but every time you see a slightly different versions of these counters because you might have different permissions. So if you have a hundred users, you have like the order of magnitude is a hundred scares, so 10,000 counters that needs to be updated in real time. And that might all change multiple times per second. And that has to be synced with hundreds of clients in is real it time. Is counters? Yes. What, what do you mean by counter? What's an example of a counter? So like in Gmail, next to your inbox, you have a number that tells you how many unread emails you have right ah, now. Ah, okay. And so that's going to vary from different people depending on the privacy settings, the permission settings of different emails. Yeah, so for example, you could say that I have access to these five inboxes and you have access to three other inboxes, but I've manually given you access to a few conversations in inboxes that you normally can't access. And so the numbers you see have to accommodate that. So there was this issue with Facebook Messenger, I remember, a while ago. And people, when I was talking to people about React.js, in the, in the early days of React.js, there were some Facebook engineers that, that came on the show to talk about why React.js, like, kind of what it did in a novel way. And one of the things that they, they would always bring up as an example was this issue with Facebook Messenger, where it was hard to actually get your different Facebook Messenger clients to register the right number of of messages that you had received. So you would you know you would log into Facebook Messenger and you would see a, a red indicator that said you had a message and you would click on it and you would go into it and look at it and be like well, I don't have a message. And so there would be some problem with I guess syncing all these different clients and making sure that something has gotten read or it's gotten responded to. It sounds like what you're what you're referring to there is is a is a similar problem where you have all these different clients that are interacting in different ways and so all these different counters like the number of messages that have been read or need replying or need you know these can be addressed by different people so keeping all these different like counters in sync is is not an easy problem yes exactly i guess like like we apply in the end the same types of patterns as react but in this case we apply them on the back end because the problem is that in a team inbox, someone else could mark this inbox as read because the goal is not for everyone in an organization to read every single message. It's to make sure that the team as a whole is able to get everything done. So Front is a shared inbox. So I have communications in my inbox that might be private, they might be public. Is it hard to train users to understand who has the rights to seeing a particular message and, and train them to understand that, you know, there's certain circumstances where you need to share a message and other circumstances where you want to keep things more private. How, how do you change that behavior? Because email behavior is, is very hardwired for some people at this point. Uh, yes, so I think it's the hardest problem we have to 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 figure out in, in terms of product. The biggest problem, as you said, is that there are lots of habits that are sometimes bad habits, and even if you come up with a with a solution that that you think is better, you have to to reeducate people. The, the way we solve this problem is that first, uh, we really position the product uh, as a product to solve shared inboxes. So we worked on this problem of uh, uh, teams that are receiving messages that are not meant for individuals like your support inbox or your contact inbox. 
And it was so painful to solve it with traditional email that people were willing to spend time and understand how a product might work differently. And then as the company and the product expanded, we've eventually like rebuilt the ability to have your private inboxes. So for example, my Laurent at uh, Frontap inbox is something that, that lives in front today. And the reason we did it is that even though it starts as something private, it often evolves into something that involves the rest of the team. So one thing that happens very often is that someone I've met will reach out to me directly and say, oh, uh, we've met at this place. I'd like to apply for a job at Front. And then immediately I want to loop in the, the, the recruiting team. So what I'm going to do is that I can simply move that conversation from my private inbox to the recruiting team inbox and suddenly it's a shared conversation. You said bad behaviors. Like, What are some of the other anti-patterns that people have developed because email, like they don't even realize that email is is not a sufficient tool for for the kinds of communications we need to have. I think that so email solved everything by creating a copy. So I, I guess like the poster child example is forwarding. And in front, we you have the ability to loop in people. So instead of creating a copy that's ever that's never going to be in sync, you can just invite someone to to this conversation. And it doesn't mean that you're sharing your entire inbox. It just means that you're sharing that one thread with someone from your team. And there's also the fact that, you know, in email, you have a single channel. So if you want to, like, you have a, an important message that you need to reply to, you have to, so you're going to forward it with some comments and eventually someone will reply to the, to your external contact. They will forget to remove your private comments and that will be sent and you will feel miserable. So in front, we have private comments and you know that private comments are always going to stay inside of front. They're never going to be sent to someone outside of the organization. Data holds an incredible amount of value. But extracting value from data is difficult, especially for non-technical, non-analyst users. As software builders, you have a unique opportunity to unlock the value of data to users through your product or service. Jaspersoft offers embeddable reports, dashboards, and data visualizations that developers love. Give users intuitive access to data in the ideal place for them to take action within your application. To check out Jaspersoft, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Jaspersoft and find out how easy it is to embed reporting and analytics into your application. Jaspersoft is great for admin dashboards or for helping your customers make data-driven decisions within your product because it's not just your company that wants analytics. It's also your customers that want analytics. Jaspersoft is made by Tibco the software company with two decades of experience in analytics and event processing. In a recent episode of Software Engineering Daily, we discussed the past, present, and future of TIBCO, as well as the development of Jaspersoft. In the meantime, check out Jaspersoft for yourself at softwareengineeringdaily.com Jaspersoft. Thanks to Jaspersoft for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. So what are some other unique technical concerns? You're building an email client. What are some particular challenges that are different from a more... Because a lot of the companies that I interview are building a SaaS web app, and they all have their unique challenges. But a shared inbox, 
an email client that's a little bit different than a lot of the the SaaS companies that I interview. What are some some other ways that are your challenges are unique with the particularly sensitive area of email communications? Another big issue is that, uh, as you said, like we store a lot of data for our customers. Like for some companies, we have hundreds of of, of gigabytes. And we are constantly like improving the product. And at the same time, you need to make sure that that data is secure. So you need to have a strong engineering processes to make sure that you don't introduce vulnerabilities. And in the end, an email client is a piece of software that renders HTML that was generated by who knows who that might contain scripts. So in terms of there are, there are lots of, of ways in which your product could break down and you need to assemble a fairly good team to make sure that that you have tests everywhere so that your product stays secure and your customer stays happy. But to what degree can you leverage the security guarantees of Gmail or Office 365 or I mean these systems have been building spam detection and virus detection and so on for a really long time can you leverage that at all or do you have to rebuild a lot of that? So we do so if Gmail like gives us an indication that that something is dangerous, we'll use that information, but we, we cannot rely on on someone uh, on someone else to, to to do that job for us. So, so what's an example of you know do you, do you have to write spam detection? Do you ha- you have to write virus scanners? No, it's more. So for example, one thing that happens is that you receive a message and the name of that message matches the name of someone from your organization, but the email address actually doesn't come from your organization. And in that case, since we know exactly who belongs to your organization, we can tell you like uh, this person is not from your organization. So the problem is that if you build something like heuristics to flag what is spam, it's a system that, that, that's going to work, but there, there's always a risk. So in like what we try to build is things when we can objectively say that there is a risk here, we're going to warn you. If it's something that has to be trained today, we're going to, to rely on, on partners like Memcast or Gmail to, to make that detection. Memcast. What's Memcast? Memcast. So it's something that, that will capture every email that is sent or received in your organization. And then, for example, if you realize that you've received a phishing email, you can actually say, okay, who clicked on that link in my organization? Okay, so you have talked a little bit about the backend infrastructure, the fact that a user signs up, you've got MySQL database that can get the metadata of their emails, you've got uh, S3 bucket that you know stores the, the contents of the email, and you've got some queuing infrastructure. Can you give me a little bit more detail on that core backend infrastructure? What happens when a, a new user or a new company signs up? Yes, so an interesting thing is that we have several data centers in multiple regions. So when you sign up, we're going to check okay, what is the closest location available? And we're going to pin your data to that location. And usually there are local regulations, meaning that companies, for example, European companies do not want their data to ever go outside of the European Union. But we have cases where a company wants to relocate to another data center and we have systems so that we can seamlessly move your data to another place without any downtime. 
And then, what do you mean exactly what happens after? Uh, so we, we create an account and then, so there is a system so that you can connect your existing email accounts or, uh, for example, SMS phone number in front. And then you, you can start uh, using front as your main email client. Right. I guess I, I was just referring more to the back end. What else needs to get spun up? And I guess what the schema for those different... So, you know, you mentioned you're, you're storing this stuff in S3. So does like a new bucket get created for uh, for this new company? And does a new queuing channel get set up for, you know, handling all the messaging? I'm just wondering how the, you know, how the scale up partitioning is set up. Yeah, so each region we have MySQL chart. So we're going to, again, pin you on. So today, like the way our, our architecture works is that we have multiple regions, multiple charts, and today a customer lives inside of only one chart. So we will get eventually to a point where a customer has to live in multiple charts at the same time because they're, they're too large. That hasn't happened yet, so it's not a problem we solve today. What we do solve is that we have the ability after the fact to rebalance our charts and to move customers between charts. So it's something that 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 we do all the time, and we are constantly like uh, moving data between data centers. Cool. So it, this is MySQL on a managed AWS service? Yes. So it might be tempting to say like, oh, I'm going to manage everything myself. But uh, it's actually hard to be absolutely sure that you're going to do it better than AWS. And it's also hard to convince your customers. So like doing it better than AWS is one thing and convincing your customers that you can do it better than AWS is another thing. So I think that now until we reach a pretty big scale, it's pretty important to architect your service so that you can leverage the experience of uh of actors like AWS. Well, certainly, if I knew that Front was using their own bucket storage solution instead of S3 or Google's bucket storage or Azure bucket storage, uh, I would probably uh, not feel comfortable putting my emails there. So what are some of the particular things? So when you can use a, a managed database service like like AWS, what is it, Aurora? Is that is that the, the managed MySQL? So we tried with Aurora, but it doesn't it doesn't work well with our workload. So we stayed on like vanilla MySQL. Okay. Oh, vanilla MySQL. Okay. So are there services that make it easier to do that sharding process? Like when you can move these different shards between different data centers and so on, is that taken care of by AWS or does it have to be kind of manually programmed? So it's something that we built manually, but it ended up being easier than, than what we thought it'd be. So we use, so Node.js is actually very, very good for these types of tasks. So we have a system that's going to open up. It's a script. It's going to connect to the server where the customer's data lives. And it's going to pretend like it's a new MySQL replica. So it's going to get a live feed of all the changes that are applied to that server. And we have a simple system that extracts all the updates that concern that customer. And it's going to replicate in real time these updates uh, to the new server. And then this script opens a second connection and copies all the existing data. And so at the end, we reach a state where the customer is kept in sync between the two data centers. 
and we have an atomic system where we can say at some point, okay, all of the new writes are going to land on the new server. And once we detect that there are no new writes on the back server, on the, on the old server, we flip a switch and the customer is relocated. So this system allows us to, we have customers with a lot of data and we can atomically uh, relocate them between data centers. Since we're on the subject of services and backend engineering, you're migrating to Kubernetes right now. How is that going? It's going well, actually. Like this morning, we have trainings to make sure that all the on-call teams uh, know how to operate the cluster. I guess for us, it's like the we want to eliminate risks, and so having stateful systems is is always a risk because you don't know what you're relying on. It's also a way to be more compliant and to make sure that you do not have to give SSH access to a lot of engineers without any accountability. So you can limit what what people can 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 do. Like they can only access logs, but they cannot like physically uh, work on the servers. And it's also like in terms of of costs, it's easier to uh, start and stop new services. So it will help us reduce cost. Why does Kubernetes make that permissioning easier? So today we use Chef. And so Chef is going to always uh, reinstall the, the same instances. But in order to uh, troubleshoot some things, we, we have like a group of about 10 engineers that can SSH to a server. We have SSH logs, but uh, it's hard to audit them. So it's hard to you know, say for sure that you know exactly what everyone has done on every server. And since we reuse always the same containers, you don't know that maybe someone made a manual operation on one server one day and that server is functioning today because of that one operation. So with Kubernetes, you're always going to start with a, with a clean slate, which means that you know that you're not relying on, on something that, 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 that someone changed outside of chef control. Are you using one of these managed Kubernetes services? We wanted to use AWS managed uh, ELK services, but there were features that were missing. So in the end, we decided to roll out our, our own deployment. It sounds like auditability and having logs that can ensure that the security of your data has not been compromised. It sounds like that's really, really important to you. Yes. So you have at the same time, like you're inventing a new product. So you start with email and how it works individually. And then you try to think, okay, if I expand it to include, you know, team workflows, how does it change? And it turns out that a lot of things change. So it's a challenge on the product. And it's like, it's also a challenge in terms of engineering because you cannot like rebuild your apps from scratch every week. So you need to architect your product in a way that uh, the new things you're going to learn about the product are things that you're going to be able to bake in in your existing platform. So that's one big area. And the second area is that as you do that, you need to make sure that your system is secure, is, is secure, is, 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 uh, is secure. But in terms of auditability, do you back up all of your logs? Like, how often do you roll your logs? Do you is there do you have some append-only system where you could always be able to look up at what point in history somebody has accessed a system? Yes, yeah, we have that for. Uh, so I think we we can go back at least we we have a, a kibana cluster to access like basically all the information that, that we need to access we have a year of data that that's accessible immediately and the rest is in uh, s3 buckets so if we need to pull up something that happened two years ago uh, we'd have to reread the data but it's still available 
You've got people communicating over email, over Facebook Messenger, over Twitter, I think. Do you have a schema that aligns these different messaging platforms or do you just like keep them totally disjoint? So what we've chosen to do is I think 95% of our code base is message agnostic. So it doesn't care if it's handling Twitter messages or, or emails. And we've tried to keep the email part to a very tiny set of our code uh, that, that's really channel dependent. So in the end, like there are like differences, but we try to keep them in, in, in very key uh, areas of, of our code. For example, like one big difference that's very annoying to us is uh, that uh, in terms of the life cycle of messages, the ID of messages are not always set at the same time. So when you set an email, the client actually sets the ID of their email, but when it's a tweet, it's actually decided by Twitter themselves. And it's a bit different for every type of channel. And like the idea that uh, your ID is going to set at different times in your life cycle is something that when you build your architecture, if you wanted to take an existing system and then say, okay, then no, I want to add chat messages or I want to add SMS, it can actually be a lot harder than it seems because of simple problems like that. So do you solve that by having an internal ID and then an external ID also? Yes, but I guess like the more important thing is that very early in the in the product uh, development, we have added a second channel just to make sure that, that we could do it. And at that point, like adding a third types of channel was a lot easier. So when we started building the product so about like four and a half years ago, so once the main use case of email was working, we added Twitter as soon as we could to prove ourselves that and to make sure that our architecture could accommodate different types of message types. Are there any other challenges that come from that heterogeneity from the fact that you have Twitter and Facebook and all these other messaging thingies in the same app? Yes. So for example, so we support like about a dozen of, of channel types today and like there are no two systems that work the same. So for example, for Facebook, you can reply, but you cannot compose because that's not something that, that the Facebook API allows. You can reply, but you can't compose. What does that mean? So if a user initiates a conversation with you, you can reply to them, but you cannot on your own initiate a conversation with, with a user because Facebook doesn't want people to use their API to spam people. So that's not something you can do uh, with API access. So in your client, you have to remember that when you compose, you have to exclude Facebook messages and you have channels where you can reply but to one customer only. You have channels where you, you can compose to multiple people at people at once and every channel is, is a bit different. So in the end, you have to uh, find a common ground so that you can describe all of these channels in, in a single product. But if you can do it, it's very useful because we constantly have things where uh, people will call us out on Twitter and then a tweet becomes a support discussion. And then if that person says something really nice about us, we'll want to loop in the marketing team because maybe that's something we'd, we'd want to post on our homepage. Uh, and th that's just for us, like uh, we constantly see our customers do amazing things because they can have a complete picture of their external communication in one place. When a bug occurs on your website, LogRocket captures the user behavior and allows you to do an instant replay to see how the user responded to the bug. 
LogRocket lets you replay what users do on your site, helping to reproduce bugs and fix issues faster. See issues as if they happened in your own browser with a full video replay and get those issues fixed fast to maintain the health of your application and keep customers happy. LogRocket works regardless of your application's language or framework, and it provides SDKs for specific technologies. You can easily integrate with the tools that you already use. You can check out a demo at logrocket.com slash sedaily, which would also support Software Engineering Daily. LogRocket also records console logs, JavaScript errors, stack traces, network requests and responses with headers and bodies, browser metadata, and custom logs. If you're triaging back-end errors, it can be unclear why the front-end made an unexpected request. LogRocket integrates with back-end logging and error reporting tools to show you the corresponding front-end session logs for every back-end error and log entry. Quickly understand your bugs and fix them with LogRocket. Go to logrocket.com sedaily to find out more, to see a demo, and to support Software Engineering Daily. Thank you to LogRocket for being a sponsor. I want to talk about the front end a little bit more. Uh, the app is real time, and it's a desktop app that's HTML5, JavaScript, CSS. This is an Electron app. What does the architecture on the front end look like? So we started initially with Angular 1, which was like the arguably the best framework at the time. This year, we've been rewriting everything in React. I think that so the important thing was to find patterns that could be reused by the team so that new people could contribute to the user base, to the, to the code base, sorry. I don't know how I would describe the architecture of the app. I guess like what we have today is we've really tried to build something that that's state of the art. So for example, in terms of CSS, we actually use a very, very small subset of the CSS features. We've rebuilt everything to use CSS grid. So we have like one way of positioning components and only one way. We use in our tool chain a system so that we build components that are completely reusable. So they do not de depend on CSS that's outside of them. So basically, if you include a component somewhere, this component is always going to look the same way. If you want it to look differently in some context, you need to add, to add a system to configure that component. But that logic will always live inside of the component. Does it make sense? It does, yeah. And the first thing you mentioned when you started talking about the front end was the fact that you wanted to make the front end more approachable to new developers that were coming in to work within front. Did you have to do some refactoring to standardize the the different API surfaces that, you know, or, or add comments or something, break up a monolith perhaps? Yeah, so what we found is that, so we had a code base that we thought was pretty good and like uh, seasoned developers were able to iterate quite quickly on it. But we realized that as the engineering team grew, it became harder and harder for uh, new people to understand like uh, what were they breaking. 
uh, even if you have a test suite, it's hard to, as a newcomer, to gain the confidence that you're not breaking something. So for example, for a very long time, we prevented ourselves from uh, rewriting the app because you have to deliver new value to your customers. And if you spend a few months rewriting your app, you're not doing that. But at some point last year, we said, okay, it's been like more than four years. It's, a, it's, it's the right time to do it. And one of the big changes uh, that we made is that we rewrote everything in TypeScript. So even though it's JavaScript, you have type safety. That means that when you're looking at a, at a, at a symbol somewhere, you can know exactly like where is it used, how is it used. It also means that your build tool chain can do tree shaking. Uh, it can be more efficient at minification. And as your team you know, uh, reaches a certain size. It's really important to think of, you know, you have components that were started by engin an engineer that grow in size and that are go now going to be owned by another team. And it's important that that team feels complete ownership of the code. If they feel like it's been written by someone else and it's just their job to maintain it, you're not going to be successful. It's like the same thing that Slack, when I talked to Slack about using TypeScript, they said basically the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they have a, a type, basically a TypeScript Electron app, very similar. Why is Electron useful? Why do you see companies like Front and like Slack building these Electron apps instead of just having people open a new browser tab? So it's fun because if you look at... So I think that users like love to complain about Electron apps because, like, let's face it, it's a bit heavier. Uh, it means that you're going to have basically a new browser that's running with slightly different libraries, which means that it's going to uh, it cannot reuse the same in-memory libraries, so it's going to consume more memories. And in the beginning, we tried really hard not to do it, but there are two things that you realize. The first one is that if you're just living inside of a browser, you do not have the same engagement because people are not going to uh, go back to your app as easily. And if it's like their work tool, it's a lot harder to use. So at front, like we can see that if you're using front all day long, you absolutely want to use the desktop app. If you're just using it one hour per day, then it's okay to, uh, to live in a browser. And we see the, the, the two usage patterns. And then in terms of why use Electron specifically, it's really, really hard to make an app that works in all sorts of environments. And Electron is very good at insulating you against like the OS and everything that might be different. For a long time, like on Mac, we would not have an Electron app. We would just have a regular app with a WebKit WebView. And we constantly had customers complain about some niche features being broken because they had a slightly different version of WebKit with slightly different bugs. With Electron, you're able to ship one version that you control. You're able to have QA, make sure that everything works, and you're able to make sure that people are not going to have weird bugs. How much code reuse can you have if you want to take an Electron app and make a mobile app out of it? It depends. In, in our case, so since Front is positioned also against other email clients, when we started, it made sense to have a complete native apps. So today we have an iOS app that's fully native and we have an Android app that's also fully native. If we were to do it today, I think we'd use React Native and most of our code could be reused. When you said that, I was just thinking about that Airbnb post about React Native. 
Airbnb decided to move off of React Native recently because I guess of s- several different issues with it, but different. That's a different conversation. Yeah, I guess in our case, like so. When you sell to, like, our customers are not just Silicon Valley companies. Actually, most of our customers come from traditional industries and they don't always have the latest phones or, or the latest desktop apps. So if you want to really make something useful, that's not going to be marginally better than, than what was before. You have to target legacy industries and you have to admit that sometimes you're going to work on devices that are not, that are not the fastest. So it's something to keep in mind. So that, that's also why uh, for mobile devices, we chose to have a native apps. I agree with that approach. What about the operational side of things? How do you do continuous integration, continuous delivery, staging environments, testing on all of these different mobile client services? What's your approach there? So we've automated everything we can, I guess. Our approach is to make sure that we never release a change that we do not understand. And that means if I go back a little bit, so we have continuous integration. If you merge to uh, the production branch, uh, everything restarts. Every change has to go through a code review and you have to answer a checklist. And the most important thing in that checklist is if it breaks, how bad can it be? And second, if it breaks, how do we roll back? If we have a good answer to these two questions, we can start canarying your change to a growing number of users. And as long as we know that if we have feedback that something is broken, we can quickly roll back, it's okay. And then as much as possible, we'll first release the the changes to our own team who is using Front heavily. And if they don't find a problem with it, probably it's fine. What about product and engineering. So Front is a really well-designed product. Nice work there. How do you manage all of the different features and integrations while avoiding the interface getting too busy and overwhelming? Yeah, so like I said, we use our own product. So every engineer uses Front all the time. Like every person at Front uses Front all the time. So we're all like pretty opinionated about things we want to see and things we don't want to see in the product. And then another thing that helped us a lot is that Mathilde, my co-founder and I, for a very long time, we had a complete view of the company, just the two of us. So she would understand, like she would talk to customers. She would have a full grasp of who we're selling to. And on the other side, I would know in fairly minute details everything about the product. So the two of us, with a few senior employees in the company, we, we could make a lot of decisions and we could sometimes decide, okay, everyone is asking for this, so let's build it. And, you know, recognize that we are actually getting this feedback from several customers. And in some other times, you know, go in the, di- in the direction that no one was asking for, but we really believed was the right direction. So between the two of you, you and Mathilde, she could hold all the product conversations in her head and all the customer conversations in her head. And then she could have a conversation with you and you could know how those things might translate to different engineering decisions. And between the two of you, you could weigh the different trade-offs between decisions. Yeah, but it wouldn't be just the two of us, but it would be a fairly small group of people that had the ability to make uh, very impactful decisions about the product. And how have you scaled up that process now that it's no longer the two of you? How does product interact with engineering today? 
So we have a product team today. I guess like one thing we've retained is that we realized that engineering requires a lot of creativity. And so if you hand, you know, if you have a product team that, that crafts specifications that are extremely accurate, since you're working uh, on paper, like you cannot know exactly, uh, know all the edge cases. And if it's too detailed, the engineer that's ever, uh, that's eventually going to build a feature loses their creativity. And, you know, you, you work with blinders. And in the end, you can build something that doesn't make sense without realizing it. So we try to have a lightweight specs with the understanding that the people who is building the feature will actually contribute a lot to how that, that, that feature works. And then sometimes we mess up. So we realize that when the feature is built, it's like we discover something we hadn't planned. And in that case, you have to admit that, okay, we have to go back to the drawing board. This feature is going to be late, but it's better to have something that, that, that really works than something that, that that's not great. But at the same time, like sometimes we know that we have the beginning of something great, but it's not complete. In that case, we'll still release it just to see how people react to it. So if we know that we're going in the right direction, but it's not all that, that it could do, it's okay. We can release it. If we know that it's not the right direction, then we go back to the drawing board. So I started my podcast about three and a half years ago at this point, and I built most of it on Google Drive, Gmail, Google Sheets, the kind of the office suite of things from Google. But now there are all these next generation tools. There's Front, there's Notion, there's Airtable, there's Slack. And I, I don't know if I should be migrating to these or just like if I should use them because they're cool. Do you see these new productivity tools as replacing the classic office productivity tools or do you see them as complementary? How do you see that collaboration world changing? I think that eventually like uh, it's not necessarily that, that these tools will replace the existing tools. It's like everyone will, will move to uh, closer to a SaaS model because it's a lot easier for uh, for organizations to to manage these tools at the same time like today if you want to use all the cool tools like that means using like 40 different tools and constantly switching between them so i expect that there will be a consolidation that will happen around a small number of platforms this seems like they all have really good economics so they all make good money and there's not much reason for them to merge with one another no but it means that you will have like systems of records so Front could be one of them, uh, maybe Salesforce. Uh, you, you have a lot of good candidates. And as long as the source of the data comes from these products, eventually, like all the other products, I think, will become plugins in a small number of platforms. Yeah, okay. I know we're, we're up against time. I want to ask you a little bit about Slack. Like, how do you see people using Front versus Slack? Do you guys use Slack internally at Front as well as Front? Yes, so we use both products. I guess for us, so there are two divides. One of them is that we use Front for external communication and Slack for internal communication, but that's a bit of an artificial divide, like Slack could decide to build more uh, external stuff and we could decide to build more internal stuff. But the biggest divide is between synchronous and asynchronous. Like if you get, uh, if someone pings you on Slack, you're expected to reply right away or not reply at all. And front, on the other hand, is really meant to be asynchronous. So you, since you can move conversations around, you can move them, you can escalate them to another inbox, you can reassign them, you can snooze them. Which means that it's okay to, like, if that person does not reply right away, there's a good chance that they will eventually reply within the day or tomorrow. 
And so that's not something you could do on Slack. And we've experimented with, you know, uh, synchronous workflows in front. And today we've decided to stay away from them because we think like actually I'd rather do this in Slack than do it in a place where I mix synchronous and asynchronous stuff. Yeah, synchronous versus asynchronous. Okay, last question. There's a recent update to Gmail where there's machine learning is getting into into Gmail more and more, and it and it seems like Gmail is getting more and more acquainted with who I am and how I want to interact. Do you have a, a data science team, and how are you thinking about machine learning? What are the opportunities for machine learning in front? So what we think today is that it's hard to see in which direction data science is going to do uh, what you can do with machine learning. So we've invested on our platform, so on providing APIs so that whatever we're going to build on front in the future could be built by someone else. And even today, we already have uh, teams that are building uh, cool integrations. So for example, there's a product called Maya.ai and they built a bot platform. So you can have over Messenger, I think, a bot. And when that bot doesn't know what to reply, they'll actually call in a human through front that can take over the conversation to handle like the, the complex question asked by a human and then hand it back to, to a bot. And for example, we have customers that have built extensions on front where uh, uh, when you receive a message, they'll try to guess what the answer should be. It's not something that is built inside of front, but it's things that some customers built on top of front. Very cool. Well, Laurent, I know you got a lot to do, and I appreciate you making the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Thanks as well. It was really fun as well. Have a good day. DigitalOcean is a reliable, easy-to-use cloud provider. I've used DigitalOcean for years, whenever I want to get an application off the ground quickly. And I've always loved the focus on user experience, the great documentation, and the simple user interface. More and more people are finding out about DigitalOcean and realizing that DigitalOcean is perfect for their application workloads. This year, DigitalOcean is making that even easier with new node types. A $15 flexible droplet that can mix and match different configurations of CPU and RAM to get the perfect amount of resources for your application. There are also CPU-optimized droplets, perfect for highly active front-end servers or CI-CD workloads. And running on the cloud can get expensive which is why DigitalOcean makes it easy to choose the right size instance. And the prices on standard instances have gone down too. You can check out all their new deals by going to do.co slash sedaily. And as a bonus to our listeners, you will get $100 in credit to use over 60 days. That's a lot of money to experiment with. You can make $100 go pretty far on DigitalOcean. You can use the credit for hosting or infrastructure, and that includes load balancers, object storage. DigitalOcean Spaces is a great new product that provides object storage. And, of course, computation. Get your free $100 credit at do.co slash sedaily. And thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. The co-founder of DigitalOcean, Moisey Uretsky, was one of the first people I interviewed, and his interview was really inspirational for me, so I've always thought of DigitalOcean as a pretty inspirational company. So thank you, DigitalOcean. Wow!